Hello and welcome to Skyline Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear a shout about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Karenkov. I finished my PhD focused on AI at Stanford earlier this year, and I now work at a generative AI startup. And this week, Jeremy is not around. He is off talking to politicians, I guess, somewhere. <laughs> so we have a guest host. Hey, I'm Daniel Bashir. I am a machine learning compiler engineer at Amazon Web Services. I also co-run another publication, a good friend of last week in AI called The Gradient. Um, that's me. Yes, that's right. We've had Daniel on before. He uh, records the Gradient podcast, so he interviews a ton of people in AI. It must be, what, like 80 people now at least, right? Quite a few, yeah. We just dropped episode 106. If you're interested in, uh, this will be a lot of you, I'm sure, the philosophy of language and uh, propositional attitudes, I have a two-hour, 10-minute conversation with the professor at UT Austin about this that came out Thursday. Right. Yeah, that is uh, definitely going deep. And I guess that's generally true for the Gradient. It's another project I'm also involved in. It's a digital publication and also newsletter and, and podcast. And here on Last Week in AI, we cover broadly kind of everything, right? Whereas on the Gradient, you really go deep and, and pretty technical. So not for everyone, but if you like going deep on you know certain topics and, and really getting to the weeds, of stuff, then you might want to check it out. And before we get into discussing the news, I just want to have a quick shout out to a bunch of new reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I guess people heard our appreciation last time, and so we got like six new ones, uh, which is great. Yeah, we really love seeing it. A couple of you mentioned that we recorded while we were sick last time. So it's cool to hear that, uh, <laughs> you know, that uh, inspires you or you think, you know, that makes us committed to this, which I guess we are. And uh, yeah, thank you everyone for reviews. One of you mentioned uh, longer segments on arts and entertainment with AI. And actually we'll have some new stories on that this week. So that would be, I guess, uh, nice for you to hear. Alrighty, kicking off our first section, tools and apps with OpenAI's custom GPT store is now open for business. So this is, I guess, the big news story of the week is OpenAI has their store for custom chatbots. Uh, this is after the GPT Builder program, which was announced in November, was kind of launched, and there's now been 3 million bots created by users. So originally, the store was supposed to launch actually earlier, but has now launched. So essentially, instead of just chatting with one chat GPT, you can now chat with all these various GPTs, right? Customized versions of chat GPTs that users on the platform can create. And this is now available to users of ChatGPT Plus, enterprise users, and to this new tier of subscription that we'll cover next after this. Yeah, it's it generally sounds really exciting. And I think that the idea of getting to work with chat with GPTs that other people are creating seems really exciting. I think that some of us are going to have areas of expertise that others just aren't or are willing to put in the work to create a sort of GPT. But it's definitely interesting to note that they do have a review system in place for these custom GPTs. They want to make sure they meet grant brand guidelines and usage policies. There's also a reporting system. And kind of seeing a little bit around the Twitterverse, I've seen at least a few people who have made custom GPTs that ultimately got taken down and seem pretty unhappy about it. So I'm not entirely sure what those, I'll be honest, I haven't looked too deeply into the guidelines just yet. So I'm not entirely sure if they're being applied consistently, but it's um, interesting to see the response right now. Right. Yeah. And uh, it'll be just to see how this grows because you can use ChatGPT for a lot of stuff as is, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And these customized ChatGPTs are 
not too different. I think you customize them similar to other chatbot platforms. You can prompt them, give them some example. So it's not a ton of work to create a custom chat GPT. But it does seem like they might actually train on interactions. So these customized GPTs will diverge from kind of the main chat GPT over time, potentially as people use them, which would mean that this will be a true repository of, I guess, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of different chatbots trained on different data and different interactions. So uh, yeah, seems like probably a big deal, really. Yeah, that's pretty valuable, I think, especially for people who are trying to build businesses on top of these and are maybe not super happy with what GPT 3.5 right now, for example, is offering them and that maybe it's a little bit too broad or the kind of trade-offs that are implicit in using it just don't really work for their use case. And I've heard a, at least a few people complain about this thing before. So I'm curious if the GPT store is going to really change the game in that regard. That's right. And uh, it seems like at some point there will be also monetization for the creators of these chatbots. So it'll be a whole kind of platform for chatbots, similar to something like character.ai that allows you to create your own chatbots to just chat with. So this is going in that direction very much. And already when you go to the store page, you can kind of browse for um, different applications for image generation, for writing, productivity, programming, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're a fan of ChatGPT, now you might want to go and look if there's a customized version for your needs, I guess, or create one for yourself. And on to the second branch of OpenAI developments this week. The next story is on how OpenAI has released this new way to subscribe to ChatGPT aimed at small teams. And this is uh, the ChatGPT team tier that is kind of in between a single user and enterprise, seemingly. This is a... Workspace for teams of up to 149 people, and it introduces admin tools for team management and uh, you know all the usual access to all the tools, and also has a guarantee that this will not be uh, using your data to train, similar to the enterprise tier. And this is priced at $30 per user per month uh, for monthly billing or 25 per user per month. So a bit more than the standard ChatGPT Pro if you're a single user. But yeah, it's interesting that I guess they're expanding their offerings to now cover small businesses seemingly. Yeah, I was. I guess I was just kind of noting at the end of our discussion of the last story about what the GPT store could offer businesses. And then this is even more in the realm of small, medium-sized businesses, maybe very small tech startups right now are pretty interested in the differentiations that could kind of happen with training their own GPTs or achieving the equivalent effect through some other mechanism. And again, that's like really, really hard. And I think that for many of the things that businesses want to do, they're just aren't a lot of good solutions out there. And there's still a lot of research problems that need to be solved, it feels like. But it does seem that OpenAI is still targeting this market in a pretty important way. Yeah. And it's also, I think, in a way interesting that this is now similar to Google's G Suite and Microsoft's Copilot thing, where everyone now has a program where you can pay $30 per month per user or 25 in this case, if you pay for a whole year. Um, so everyone is going after the enterprise and, and now also small businesses in this case. For our first lightning round, we'll start with a story about something called the Rabbit R1. There's an AI startup called Rabbit out there that has launched a standalone AI device that's priced at $199. And it's an AI-powered gadget that can actually use your apps for you. It's about half the size of an iPhone with a 2.8-inch touchscreen, a rotating camera, a scroll wheel for navigation, and a 2.3 gigahertz MediaTek processor along with 4 gigs of memory and 128 gigabytes of storage. 
it runs on Rabbit's own operating system called Rabbit OS, which is based on what they call a large action model. This acts as a universal controller for apps. It can control music. It can order cars, buy groceries, send messages, and do more through a single user, uh, through a single interface. And again, this is a pretty interesting move. I think that there are a lot of people who are really interested in building more agentic products and things based off of large language models right now. So it's very interesting to see Rabbit actually kind of come out there with a, a device that is looking to serve this sort of need. It's uh, pretty neat looking, I guess. It's if you go to the article, and as always, we'll have the links here. Uh, it looks like a little kind of square with a screen and a camera and some and a scroller thingy. It's it's actually not too clear. So it's uh, most similar to the AI pin that we've covered before, in that it is sort of an AI first device that is meant to be a sort of hardware smart assistant a device that can potentially augment or replace your smartphone with AI built in. They just announced it, and I guess a lot of people on the Twitterverse and elsewhere got hyped about it. The initial 10,000 units sold out already. So we'll see. Uh, Yeah, it's just announced. I don't know when it'll even come out, but people seem pretty hyped. Our next story is about one of the tech giants. Amazon's Alexa has gotten some new generative AI-powered experiences. These are developed by Character AI, Splash, and Volley. And they're all available for you in the Amazon Alexa skill store. I promise I'm not marketing for Amazon. I'm just telling you what's happening here. Uh, For some of the examples here, Character AI's experience allows Alexa users to have real-time conversations with different personas. These include fictional characters and historical figures. You might have seen that Meta recently launched this sort of thing as well in their Messenger app. So this seems to be the sort of experience that a lot of companies, especially in the social space, seem to want to build around. Splash launched a free Alexa skill. This enables users to create songs using their voice. They can choose a musical genre, add lyrics, and either rap or sing along. Perhaps good if you're kind of interested in creating music, but you have no capacity for actually composing stuff like me. Volley has introduced a generative AI-powered 20 questions game. This uses AI to interact with users by asking questions, providing hints, and explaining yes or no questions. Seems like a bit of a no-brainer and uh, maybe a good strategy on Amazon to partner with these already established uh, other companies like Character.ai that we've covered as being very popular. You can't talk to all the characters, uh, it seems. You can't talk to like Elon Musk or William Shakespeare. You actually have to still go to Character.ai, but a lot of them are now available on Alexa. So yeah, now if you have one, you can play around with some fun AI stuff. And one last story for this section, Google is working on an advanced version of Bard that you will pay for. And that story, it's supposedly going to be called Bard Advanced, and this will be something you pay for for Google One. This will presumably be powered by Gemini Ultra, this uh, version of Gemini, their flagship model that's akin to ChatGPT, that uh, is yet to be out. So yeah, not too surprising here. I guess something we probably all expected, but uh, we'll be very interested to see when this does come out, if it will measure up to GPT-4 and, and other, I guess, paid tier chatbots. Everybody right now has been talking about how it feels Google is really sleeping in the AI game right now when it comes to shipping advanced chatbots, how long it took them to finally get Gemini out. And it'll be interesting because Google kind of as an incumbent has certain sorts of natural advantages. They have distribution and things like this. So the question, I guess, for Google is, will they be able to deliver something that is enough of an improvement over everything else and is distributed in the right way so that they can recover some of that market share from the competitors? I think that's a really big question for them right now. And on to the next section, applications and business, starting with one of our favorite topics in business, hardware and NVIDIA. And the story is that NVIDIA's newest chips are designed to run AI at home 
and are probably going to compete with Intel and AMD. The company NVIDIA announced three new graphic cards, RTX 4060 Super, RTX 4070, TI Super and, and one more ITX 4080 Super, all priced between $600 and $1,000. Relatively cheap relative to the high-end GPUs people use for AI training and things like that. And these will have tensor cores for running generative AI applications. So this is kind of moving away from the business enterprise level of GPUs that cost tens of thousands of dollars each towards more of a consumer bent. And as we've covered, AMD and Intel both have had some uh, of their own hardware announcements aimed more at runtime, not training, at inference. And so with these announcements, NVIDIA is uh, running into that category as well. This is pretty big. They are really jumping into again, taking great market share here and something that's going to be pretty important going forward. As Andre just kind of pointed out, this is, again, not on the side of individuals like you and me might not be training our models, but the games we play, the programs we use, Photoshop, for instance, they are more and more going to start integrating generative AI features. I think as soon as GPT-3 came out, for instance, we already saw people experimenting with using it to generate dialogues for characters. Um, and also like this chip can be used for tasks like generating images on Photoshop's Firefly generator, like removing backgrounds and video calls. Um, and NVIDIA is also developing tools for integrating generative AI into games. So this is something that's going to be pretty huge going forward. And I'm not at all surprised to see NVIDIA jumping onto that. Seems like, uh, as always, hardware is where the money is at or has been in large part so far. So NVIDIA still might be a reigning giant. Uh, we'll have to see if Intel and AMD do manage to make a dent with these new chips uh, in the fray. Our next story kind of ties in naturally to what we were talking about with games. So Valve has recently updated its rules for game developers publishing AI-based games on Steam, which requires them to disclose, actually, when their games use AI technology. And this is really a move that is coming in, I think, a lot of ways right now. This isn't just happening in games, but in the case of Valve, this is aiming to increase transparency around the use of AI in games, protect against the risks of AI-generated content, and allow customers to make informed decisions about purchasing AI-based games. Um, these rules are, are coming after a lot of developers complain that Valve was rejecting game submissions containing AI-generated assets due to copyright concerns. And so, again, this is just a case where having that transparency is going to be pretty important. There are lots of things people will run into when they're developing AI-generated media where they come into conflict with things like copyright and having some knowledge about what's going on that there is a generative AI system being used. And probably some of the technical details of that system are going to be pretty important to both understanding and, and mitigating these concerns. Seems that so far the policy has been to basically reject uh, games that use AI. And this explicit update to the policies with Valve's blog post essentially opens the floodgates, so to speak, it seems. So now you are officially allowed to use AI. You just have to disclose it. Pretty much necessary for Valve, uh, given that probably there are already many games being submitted with AI-generated content. Uh, they probably don't even know in many cases because uh, it's not like you can necessarily tell. So, yeah, interesting to see in the gaming space, which is, of course, huge, and asset generation being a huge kind of application of AI. Steam, for those who don't know, I guess we should probably mention, is a major marketplace for video games. So if you want to buy a game on a PC or Mac or any kind of non-console, you would usually go for Steam. Uh, so it's it's a huge deal for them to allow it. It's kind of like, I don't know, YouTube allowing AI in their videos, so to speak. On to the lightning round. So not too long ago, we were talking about some of the big questions for Google as it tries to push out generative AI systems. And our next story is about an AI-powered search engine called Perplexity that really wants to make Google dance. 
They recently raised $73.6 million in a funding round. This was led by IVP with participation from NEA, Databricks Ventures, NVIDIA, and Jeff Bezos, among others. Those are some pretty big names in the investment landscape. So this is like a pretty serious fundraise. The round is valuing the company at $520 million post money. That's a lot of money. Uh, So Perplexity was founded in August 2022 by a couple of engineers with backgrounds in AI, distributed systems, search engines, databases, basically all the stuff you need to put together to create a search engine like this. And Perplexity offers a chatbot-like interface that allows users to ask questions in natural language and respond with a summary containing source citations, which is, again, a really powerful alternative to something like Google. When ChatGPT came out, people were really excited about the fact that you didn't have to go to Google and then look at like the top 10 links to figure out the information you were looking for. You could just have it delivered to you. And so when you develop a system that is capable of doing a lot of the job of that search for you to deliver you the information and deliver it correctly with links and sources and all of that, you've got something really powerful and it lowers the amount of work a user has to do to find what they're looking for. So this is what they offer is quite similar to Google's Bard, for instance, where you ask a question of a chatbot and it provides an answer and and also links to these uh, articles, as you said. U.com is another version of this uh, and and ChatGPT also can do it. So it seems like a new kind of bet on a search paradigm where you ask a question and it searches the web for you it provides you a summary and uh yeah this is a big player in that space they claim to have 10 million active users and they're now valued at over 500 million so we'll have to see but uh yeah if you're looking to try out a tool then perplexity might be something you're interested in and next story is about self-driving cars and about how Waymo will start testing robo-taxis on Phoenix highways. Waymo has been testing and actually running commercial services in several cities for a while now. They've been in Phoenix for a very long time. They've been in San Francisco for a while. But this has always been in the city itself, in the streets. They have not been allowed to ride on highways. So this will be kind of expanding that to allow the cars to use that. And uh, yeah, once they start testing, presumably, you know, and sometime after, it will expand to allow that in the commercial, commercial offering as well. It's pretty exciting. And it does seem like, at least in limited cases, they are getting to deliver more and more advanced features. I actually grew up in Phoenix and I remember the first times I ever saw Waymo on a street was when I was visiting home for the summer or for break during college. I think this was sophomore year or so. And we were driving home from Sky Harbor Airport and I just saw random Waymos on the street. And I'm pretty sure that was one of the first times I'd ever seen a self-driving car actually going on the road. So it's Pretty interesting, exciting, I think, to see how far they've come in that regard. So I'm, I'm definitely very curious to see how, how things look for them going forward. Yeah, I personally use Waymo now in SF whenever I'm there instead of Uber. So I've used it like 20 times now or something. And uh, yeah, it's it's really good. I've, I've never had any issues. So I personally am excited for it to use highways because then maybe I could actually go from not a self from Palo Alto, Mondi, whatever, up to there. So this could be a big deal. And the next story is on stock photos. The story is Getty and NVIDIA bring generative AI to stock photos. Uh, they are launching generative AI by iStock, the text image platform that they are going to allow you to create stock photos with. This is building on Getty's previous AI image generation tool, but is designed for individual users rather than enterprise solutions. And this was done in collaboration with NVIDIA, trained with their Picasso model, and learned from Getty's library and uh, also iStock stock photo library. So yeah, it's uh, expanding, I guess, the range uh, of users that can create these stock photos beyond just big businesses to small and medium-sized businesses. This is definitely one of those pretty obvious markets, I feel. This was kind of going to happen eventually. So many of us, I mean, I think you and I have had to use stock photos at times. So I'm not at all surprised to see Getty getting into this. 
Also, I guess interesting is that contributors whose content was used to train the model can participate in a revenue sharing program, which is a, a pretty important detail for something like this. Right. This is uh, coming in competition with Shutterstock, which also offers a service like this. And they're going to price $15 for 100 prompts with each prompt generating four images compared to buying stock photos where each stock photo usually costs a couple bucks at least to license uh, this could be something a lot of people will would like to use i guess next up for research and advancements our first story is something coming out of DeepMind. getting back into robotics they're developing multiple research projects to create robots that can make decisions faster and work in real-world scenarios. Again, this is a very, very hard problem in AI, getting robots to do things that are actually useful in a robust way. The first project is a system called AutoRT, which combines large foundational models with a robot control model. This allows robots to gather training data in new environments and multitask. The goal is it can simultaneously direct multiple robots to carry out diverse tasks in a range of settings. It's been tested in real-world evaluations over several months. And DeepMind has integrated a robot constitution into AutoRT to ensure that the robots follow specific safety rules, including, you guessed it, Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics. This is uh, pretty fun. There's also another system they developed called the Self-Adaptive Robust Attention for Robotics Transformers to improve the efficiency of robotic transformer models. And you might have heard of the robotics transformer projects that DeepMind has come out with recently. I think that the development of foundation models really offered some very interesting research directions for grounding the outputs of these models. So for example, putting a language model together with something like a robot arm and grounding the language model suggestions for achieving a task, like I want you to move this block from this part of the room to another part of the room based off of what the robot arm could actually do. So lots of hard problems like this to explore, and it seems like DeepMind is getting down that route again. They have been working on this, you know, forever, kind of. Uh, they've done robotics research, but this is covering a blog post in which they sort of bundled a few different things, as you mentioned. So there's AutoRT, the research paper there, the full title is AutoRT, Embodied Foundation Models for Large-Scale Orchestration of Robotic Agents. Uh, and then there's SARA, self-adaptive robust attention as well. It's interesting, kind of, I guess they're starting to highlight the growing amount of work they have in this direction and the, I guess, growing capabilities of the models for robotics specifically, right? So these are foundation models as, as per that AutoRT title. Uh, they say embodied foundation models, models that are trained to really control robots. And the numbers here are pretty impressive. So they say that... They had authority proposing instructions to over 20 robots across multiple buildings and collecting 77,000 real robot episodes via both teleoperation and autonomous robot policies. And that, that allows them to collect a lot of data and therefore train these models uh, to you know, continually, I guess, expand the amount of data and control more and more rob robots all over the place. So, it seems like a pretty exciting time for robotics in terms of getting these models that allow you to do low-level control, you know, moving a robot to pick stuff up and, and move around your environment. Now we also have these higher-level control things like AutoRT that are orchestrating and making decisions on what different robots should do and kind of doing the high-level decision-making. So once we get these foundation models trained, and DeepMind seems to be very much pushing on that front. Potentially, you could get to a point of general purpose robotics. And uh, within the next year or two, that is seeming more and more plausible, given the pretty rapid advancements in the space. Our next story is about a pretty recent paper that is called MOE Mamba. And I'll talk about what this actually means for a little bit. So as you might be aware, Transformers, really, really powerful architecture, not the most efficient architecture in the world. When you feed a transformer a bunch of words, it's context. For that transformer to do inference and deliver words to you, to expand on that context, 
and to generate text, it's actually pretty computationally expensive. And that inference time, that inference actually squares with the length of the context you gave the transformer, the computations it has to do. So if you give it 100 words, then you can think of the, the computation that it takes to be 100 squared, not the best explanation in the world, but it looks something like this. And that's not the most computationally feasible thing to do, especially when you scale to super long context lens. So one thing researchers are doing right now is they're trying to figure out how to, A, work on transformers so as to mitigate that issue, but also there is a line of research exploring something called state space models, which offer linear time inference with respect to the context length. Again, that's much less expensive here. And they also have this pretty efficient training process via hardware-aware design. Uh, State-space models are pretty complicated math-wise. They're inspired by a lot of things like control theory. But basically, there have been a number of these state-space models introduced. Um, and they are currently, especially with the recent state-space model called Mamba, apparently challenging the dominance of transformers. So people are really looking into this research area. And despite the fact that all of the big architectures today are based on transformers, it's kind of another important line of research. This paper, Emily Mamba, combines the recent Mamba model with something called mixture of experts, which is a class of techniques that allow drastically increasing the number of parameters in a model without much impact to the operations, the number of operations required for the model's inference and training, basically, again, making that model a lot more powerful without having to substantially increase the computational cost of running that model. So this paper basically combines these two techniques and claims that to unlock the potential of state-based models for scaling, they should be combined with this mixture of experts technique. And so they showcase it on the recent Mamba model and find that it outperforms both the original Mamba model and transformers with mixture of experts, achieving the same performance as Mamba in much fewer training steps while preserving inference performance gains of Mamba against the transformer. That's right, yeah. So if you're a regular listener, you've heard us cover Mamba, you've heard us cover a mixture of experts with Mixtral and, and some other things. So this is basically kind of gluing the two things together. If you look at the paper, it's, it's not anything too, I guess, technically complex conceptually. They just add mixture of experts to Mamba and the findings are that it seems to make it a lot more efficient. Uh, so these two promising techniques are better together. Yeah, that's like an exciting uh, finding given that we cover again and again that it costs you know crazy amounts of money to train these models, millions of dollars. And here, Mamba is making it so the model itself is more efficient. Mixture of experts makes it so you can train with half the kind of computation to get the same performance, seemingly. And that means that we could unlock a lot of efficiency. And potentially, that would enable a lot of scaling, which would mean that we can make our models even better. So yeah. Exciting times in the AI, you know, architecture, technical detail space. For a while, for a couple of years, it was all transformers all the time, and nothing seemed to really, you know, cross that threshold of being good enough to replace transformers. But you might be getting there. Mm -hmm. And after the lightning round, starting with Pixar Delta, fast and controllable image generation related consistency models. PixArt is one of these text-to-image generation models. PixArt Alpha is something that has existed before that could generate these high-quality image uh, of up to uh, 1,000 pixel resolutions with an efficient training process. So PixArt Delta is basically a delta, a next step on that, that introduces some extra tricks into the process. We have this latent consistency model and and ControlNet, uh, just combining some existing concepts, and that significantly uh, speeds things up. It produces high-quality images in just a few computation steps, so that means that it takes only half a second for generating a 1,000 by 1,000 pixel image. Uh, that's a seven-fold uh, speed-up. And it is also meant to train within a single day on 
high-end GPUs. So yeah, it's following up on a lot of progress also in this space of making being able to generate images quickly. And uh, yeah, for a lot of these businesses and applications that have generative uh, text-to-image capabilities, soon we might be able to see images being generated in under a second, just super quick. Yeah, I think the big thing to focus on there, as Andre was saying, is that the primary upshot for a lot of this technical work is when these models eventually get integrated into things like consumer applications, things businesses deliver to you, apps that you might be using yourself. Everything is going to be a lot faster. It's going to be higher quality. It's going to be more controllable. You are going to get the types of images you are actually looking for a lot more easily. And next Paper is InSurf. <laughs> That's a good little pun. Text-driven generative object insertion in neural 3D scenes. So we haven't covered NERF in a little while, but NERF is still very popular. NERF is a technique for generating 3D models and 3D scenes from images. And InSurf is, as the title of a paper says, a way to edit, insert objects into 3D scenes constructed by NERF. So similar to, I guess, being able to edit a 2D image and in-paint something in there, now you can do that with 3D scenes. And as I've said before on this podcast, I think 3D generation and editing of 3D is, is going to be a big trend and area of improvement throughout this year. I think one of the cool features of this is that it allows for controllable and 3D consistent object insertion without requiring explicit 3D information as input. So again, I think these methods, as they get more powerful, they're just going to require less and less effort on the part of the people using and, and developing things, which is really exciting. Just to be uh, extra clear, this requires a bounding box in the 3D scene and a text prompt. So the way you might think of using this is you're looking at a 3D scene on your screen, you're kind of you know, rotating it around, see a floor and you want to add a table onto a floor, you have a bounding box, say add X here, and it does that. And uh, yeah, if you're curious about this application space, they have a project page with a nice little video and it's pretty seamless. It's, it's, it's pretty impressive. Next story is about the impact of reasoning step length on large language models. For some context here, a lot of you have probably heard of chain of thought prompting before. This is pretty crucial in enhancing the reasoning abilities of large language models. I, I just did air quotes around reasoning abilities because there is a lot of back and forth over whether these things actually reason. I tend towards the more skeptical side, but what have you. And so again, the relationship between chain of thought effectiveness and, and the length of reasoning steps and prompts isn't super well understood. So in this paper, researchers conducted experiments to explore that relationship I just mentioned. They manipulated the length of reasoning steps in chain of thought demonstrations while keeping other factors constant. Again, this sort of length of reasoning steps things uh, has a bit to do with how complex the issue you're trying to get your language model to reason through might be. And they found that lengthening the reasoning steps and prompts without adding new information actually significantly improves LLM's reasoning abilities across multiple data sets, uh, possibly because there's some more context or something like this added to that. And they also found that shortening the reasoning steps, even while preserving key information, considerably reduces the model's reasoning abilities. So this is in the context of chain of thought prompting, where you tell the model, you know, think through what you should do and then give me a solution. A reasoning steps here is basically how much uh, budget you give it to work with in terms of how much reasoning, how much kind of prelude to its answer in terms of these thought steps it is allowed. And we've covered quite a few papers here on this whole prompt engineering genre of research where you're like, okay, how do I alter my prompts and get the model to be uh, more accurate? Chain of thought being one of the big ones. So this is pretty useful in terms of understanding how to use chain of thought well. And uh, we've, we've covered quite a few papers that integrate shade of thought in data generation and sort of factual, factuality uh, 
checking and then various things like that. So it's it's pretty significant to, I guess, understand a little bit better how to use chain of thought properly. And one last paper, which we aren't going to go too far into because we have already covered this topic of mixed raw. But I think it is worth highlighting that uh, the company Mistral has released the full white paper. So originally they released the model Mixtral 8x7B, which we covered back when it came out, this mixture of experts uh, variant of on a chatbot that was very good and is very popular with people building on top of this open source uh, release of a model. So they have released uh, a paper now that you can go look through for a whole bunch of results, uh, You know, lots of analysis on training and performance and so on that um, yeah provides more details that kind of corroborate what we already know, which is Mixtral is quite good and using a mixture of experts seems to really improve training and accuracy uh, in pretty impressive ways. Next up is our policy and safety section. And our first story here is, uh, this is, this is going to be a fun one. So I am decidedly not a fan of some of the directions that AI companionship is going. And this kind of story is a good reason for that sort of thing. So recently, Meta and OpenAI have managed to spawn a wave of AI sex companions. And you you might know already where this is going. There is a website where users can interact with uh, and chat with AI bots called Chubb AI. In- interesting name there. It offers a variety of scenarios, including a brothel staffed by underage girls, which is raising concerns about AI-powered child pornographic role play. The uncensored AI economy includes a lot of sites like Chubb AI, and this was initially spurred by OpenAI and later accelerated by Meta's release of its open source Llama tool. Again, technologies, they can be used for good, but they're always dual use. You release something open source that anybody can use and and things like this are just going to happen. And experts are warning, again, that these activities may pose real world dangers for miners and raise questions about legal and ethical boundaries as well as tech companies' accountability for uncensored AI. Um, Chubb AI is actually, for context here, an uncensored clone of character AI, which Andre mentioned earlier. It allows, again, users to engage in role-play scenarios of AI characters. And as we mentioned, some of these involve child pornography. Not a fan. The title, I guess, is highlighting Meta in particular because, as we've covered, they released Llama 1 and Llama 2, which are very powerful chatbots that you can use for nefarious activities. And this is highlighting an example of that. Um, OpenAI, they highlight in the title because you can jailbreak ChatGPT to do things that it's not supposed to. Although uh, I assume in the terms of service, you know, OpenAI can come after you if you are doing that and uh, can kind of stop you. Whereas with these uh, models, they are open source. The models are released. You can basically take them and uh, do whatever you want uh, to some extent with them. So yeah, not surprising, I suppose, but we do live in a world now where these models are in the wild and have been in the wild for a little while. So having a lot of this uncensored AI, so to speak, a lot of people are kind of putting a lot of effort into having models that you can use to do whatever you want, even let's say role play with underage uh what what term should I use here? <laughs> uh, underage uh, sex workers. Let's go with you sure. Know, that uh, is uh, just happening. And if you're interested, I guess in the details or at least in a real world example of this already happening, Chubb is uh, discussed in a decent amount of detail in the story. As a, as a prominent example. And apparently it's making a lot of ma- money. It's uh, generated over 1 million in revenue since uh, launching this chat service. So mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we'll have to see if Meta does try to kind of fight uh, uses of its open source models that are this problematic. 
Yeah. And and before we jump into our next story, I'll just very quickly highlight that part of why this sort of thing is even able to happen is that users have figured out ways to jailbreak the chatbots to obtain unmoderated responses, which is what's leading to the emergence of these uncensored bots. So that's, again, kind of highlighting the research area of there is this back and forth where companies like OpenAI, like Anthropic, like Meta are training their models not just to predict the next word, but adding these techniques on top of them in order to ensure that they output things that are reasonable, that meet certain guidelines that they're going to want. And this does mean that users using ChatGPT might have a more frustrating experience, but it also guards against use cases like these. And so there is this back and forth between the training techniques used to make these models have safer, more aligned outputs with principles, but then people on the other hand who are inevitably going to come and figure out ways to get around that. Now, I will mention, it's also worth noting that Nama 2 isn't fully, fully open sourced. There are also uh, certain uh, restrictions in the license agreement. So it does say explicitly that your use of Vilama must comply with applicable laws and regulations and adhere to the acceptable use policy for Llama material. And there's quite a few details in that use policy. So potentially Meta could go after this organization if they are indeed using Llama 2 as a backbone. But as an organization, you could also just not say anything potentially, right? You could just build a service off of any open source chatbot and Meta may not be able to go after you necessarily. So there's a lot of kind of dimensions to open source and should you open source and whatever, whatever, whatever. We're not getting into it. You're mm -hmm. just kind of highlighting something that is now happening because of a relation of open source. Mm -hmm. Next story. This is now on, you've seen a lot of cases and we discussed one a little bit earlier about the use of copyrighted material and AI models and what that looks like. OpenAI has recently stated that it would be impossible to create AI tools like its chatbot, ChatGPT, without access to copyrighted material. Um, and this is, again, as AI firms like OpenAI are facing increasing scrutiny over the content used to train their products. Um, as we all know, a lot of the data from the internet that ChatGPT, that image generators like Stable Diffusion are trained on is covered by copyright. And just recently, the New York Times sued OpenAI and Microsoft accusing them of unlawful use of its work to create their products. In fact, as this was going on, a lot of users went into ChatGPT and realized that, yes, it was actually quite easy to get ChatGPT to just verbatim spit out quotations and actually pretty extended quotations of multiple paragraphs of New York Times articles just by prompting it in the right ways. OpenAI pretty quickly covered this up. I went in a couple hours after seeing some of these posts to try it myself, and pretty obviously OpenAI had sort of patched this up. But it's definitely pretty concerning and, and interesting that you're just able to get these verbatim repetitions. Right. So this is kind of development on top of that uh, New York Times lawsuit we covered last time. And this ties into the broader story of the general, I guess, argument OpenAI is making that training models uh, on copyright material is a case of fair use. So fair use is basically cases where there's an exemption to the copyright on the data uh, for, you know, there's examples like you can use copyrighted materials for educational purposes. And OpenAI has been making the case that it is a case of fair use to use copyrighted material to train a model. Uh, and, and this is kind of an instance where they submitted this, I guess, uh, argument to the House of Lords. So uh, we'll, yeah, it'll be inter very interesting and impactful to see where this goes legally. I guess there'll be a big fight over the question of whether data is for use when it is used for training a model. New York Times obviously is saying that it isn't, but uh, it'll, it's still an open question. And it is kind of a very important question that will probably be addressed uh, in sometime this year. Mm -hmm. 
And OpenAI is pretty openly supportive of independent analysis of their security measures. They've agreed to work with governments on safety testing their most powerful models before and after deployment. And I think that in a lot of cases, Sam Altman has kind of spoken to regulators and said, yeah, we're, we're open to regulation. Um, and again, in cases like this, motives might be questioned. You might have different opinions, but at least it's, it's kind of interesting to see that they appear to be willing to work with people as to the details of what that actually looks like it's it's hard to say very much right now and on to the lightning round with another story originating in england the story is that judges in england and wales are given cautious approval to use ai in writing legal opinions so yeah the courts and tribals judiciary in england and wales has given us official permission to use ai in writing these uh, rulings uh, they still restrict and and say that ai should not be used for research or legal analysis due to host nations and we've seen uh, several new stories already of cases where in actual cases lawyers cited kind of fake precedents or fake information because of chatbots. So uh, this is among the first news stories I've seen where there's an official kind of policy of use chatbots to maybe write your rulings, but do not use them for research. It's noted specifically judges can use AI as a secondary tool for specific tasks. So this is like writing background material, summarizing known information, quickly locating familiar material, but it shouldn't be used for finding new unverifiable information or for providing analysis or reasoning. And I think that these safeguards and limitations and that use, uh, at least just the rules around it, are pretty important, especially when you're talking about, well, discourse, statements people might make that could be legally binding in some way. And so I think it's actually a pretty big question for the law about for judges, maybe for companies, when they issue statements that are legally binding, and maybe some of those statements are AI generated, what that looks like, what are the parameters, how do you deal with that? And on a related note, we actually have a little research paper in this non-research section, but it's very relevant because this is a story from the Human-Centered AI Institute at Stanford, and it is about a study from the Stanford Reg Lab about the amount of hallucination and kind of incorrect information found in chatbot responses when you have specific legal queries. And the finding is that there's a huge amount of mistakes. So they found that between 69% to 88% of responses to these legal queries can uh, result in hallucinations in state-of-the-art LLMs. And also they highlighted that the LLMs often lack self-awareness about the errors and can reinforce incorrect uh, information, which is uh, yeah, something that if you use an LLM, you might have found that sometimes if you point out something's wrong, it would just say that uh, it is in fact correct and so on. So very much ties into that previous story in terms of given that we know that it seems that current LLMs make a lot of mistakes when you ask legal questions and, and I guess would do analysis and research it might be a good idea to restrict their use for this uh, case, uh, just as we heard England did. Yeah, and, and some of these findings are, I guess, pretty unsurprising if you spend time with the chatbot, but also, again, very important for the usage in these contexts, given the prevalence of certain sorts of cases, for example, in their training data, these chatbots might the, they might favor things like well-known justices, specific types of papers. The study also found something that is not just true in a legal context, but again, if you spend any time with the language model, you might ask it these sorts of trick questions where included in the prompt you give it, you lead it towards the wrong answer. And the model is very likely to take you up on that and just kind of go along with what you said. So the study found that LLMs are susceptible to contrafactual bias or the tendency 
to assume that a factual premise and a query is true, even if it's flatly long, wrong. Like if you ask it, why was peanut butter invented in 2020 or something? I can't promise you that prompt is going to work out. But when you make statements like this, when you query it, when you ask things that implicitly assume or just say something that is totally wrong, the model more often than not just kind of goes along with you. And to be clear, this is for general purpose chatbots. So this is specifically GPT 3.5, Llama 2, Palm 2. This is not uh, covering chatbots that are specialized for legal applications. And there are startups like Harvey that are looking into, you know, making it, making chatbots usable for research and analysis. Uh, but the upshot is if you're in law or if you're, I guess, talking to a lawyer, they should probably not be using ChatGPT or anything like ChatGPT to do research uh, unless it's, I don't know, super well-known or something. But in general, you should be very careful. Mm-hmm. Next section is on synthetic media and art. And we're kicking off this section with something that, again, kind of concerns rubs with the law. Recently, a list of 4,700 artists whose work was used to train an AI art generator has gone viral, revealing names such as Norman Rockwell and Wes Anderson. This list was used in a court exhibit in a lawsuit against companies Midjourney, Stability AI, DeviantArt, and Runway AI, again, all very big names, accused of misusing copyrighted work to train their AI systems. Many artists have accused Midjourney specifically of stealing their work without permission, and a spreadsheet listing almost 16,000 more artist names as proposed additions to a Midjourney style list was also shared on social media. This has again highlighted artists' frustrations with the lack of regulation around AI-generated art. Questions have been raised about the fairness of profiting from mass-produced images when the AI models that create them are are trained on and imitate styles created by real-life artists. Again, if you're somebody out there who has put out a lot of paintings in your name, then somebody could prompt an AI image generator to ask for an image in your style, but it's the image they want to see. For you as an artist, that might significantly impact your livelihood. Um, the, The document that contains a list, was publicly accessible until it went viral, but an archive of the spreadsheet does remain available online. This kind of came out of this court case and then uh, went viral and generated a lot of discussion. It's still the case that in the art world, these text-to-image models are very controversial. A lot of people really viscerally hate them. I don't know if you ever interact with those communities online as, I guess, more of an AI person. Yeah, there's strong feelings there very much still. And this kind of spreadsheet that highlights how thousands of artists uh, have been sourced, so to speak, in terms of the data used to train the models for many of these people kind of is adding fuel to a fire, it seems. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's pretty hard to deal with this because OpenAI said in that previous story we covered that it's impossible to train their chatbots to be as good as they are without training on copyrighted material. And, and a specific case here where Midjourney's founder, David Holes, admitted in 2022 he didn't seek consent from artists who are still alive or whose works are still under copyright, citing, again, the difficulty of tracking the origin of 100 million images. It's just really, really hard to get all the data you might want to make these models perform well and imposing rules like getting consent from every artist whose work is still under copyright is really, really hard. So then the questions, there aren't a lot of good answers here. Do you just not train the model on them? In that case, you don't get the good model. Or do you seek permission? That doesn't scale very well. It's um, we're, we're definitely not at a good point where we have a great resolution on things like this. And on to a slightly different topic, which is deepfakes. The story is that YouTube is cracking down on AI-generated true crime deepfakes. And this is, once again, an example of the weird sort of sci-fi, we are living in the future right now situation we have gotten ourselves into with AI. So YouTube is banning content that uses AI to simulate the victims of crimes 
which include minors, from narrating their own deaths or violent experiences. Uh, this is crazy. So apparently there's a genre of true crime content that uses AI to create disturbing depictions of victims. Uh, and yeah, now there's an explicit policy that says that you're not allowed to do that. It's... Yeah, pretty insane, but another example of the sort of stuff we're going to get from AI when it's in the wild. Yeah, with with these powerful models, again, we've talked about how they're going to get easier to use. They already are pretty easy to use to create things. And I guess among all of the types of content people consume, there's some pretty interesting niches out there and inevitably given how easy it is now to create content like this, somebody is going to go and do things like what we're seeing here. Families of victims depicted in these videos have criticized them as disgusting. And again, YouTube is imposing some some uh, some actual recourse here. So violation of this updated policy results in a strike that removes the offending content and temporarily restricts the user's activities on the platform. And penalties increase for further violations within 90 days, which would potentially lead to the removal of an entire channel. And actually, on a related note, the next story starting off a lightning round is also on the AI-generated content on YouTube. This time, it's not uh, true crime, it's comedy. The story is that this AI-generated George Carlin comedy special was slammed by a comedian's daughter. And yeah, there's a whole YouTube video called uh, George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead. George Carlin, if you don't know, is kind of a legendary stand-up comedian who is, is just very well known and, and very well regarded. So this uh, was released and uh, yeah, met a lot of criticism, including from George Carlin's daughter. And this AI special, it covers current topics that Carlin might have addressed in his comedy if he were alive today, such as mass shootings and billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. This is another, again, example of where you're taking the art that somebody has created in a style that is uniquely that person's and then creating the content you want out of it. The AI does clarify at the beginning of the special that it is an impersonation of George Carlin developed by listening to all of his material. But again, these are these are thorny questions. Is this the sort of thing that people obviously want to consume these things? There's a market for it. But is it a good thing to have? Do we want this sort of thing? Hard to say. I think it's it's pretty fair to say it's in poor taste, personally. But yeah. Agreed. Next story, SEG-AFTRA signs deal with voice over studios for AI use in video games. So going back to SEG-AFTRA, as we've covered, they had a strike last year that uh, wound up with some uh, agreements on the use of AI for a kind of your visual appearance. And now there is a deal with this AI voice over studio, Replica Studios, that sets the terms of use for AI in video games. And these terms include informed consent for the use of AI to create digital voice replicas and uh, requirements for save storage of digital assets. So very much, yeah, expanding on the deal that uh, was already in place uh, that dealt with digital replicas and AI versions of actors. Yeah, this is again kind of trying to rebalance. Now we have AI systems that are naturally just going to take away a lot of work from people. And they're looking for agreements to create new employment opportunities. Specifically, this agreement is expected to create new employment opportunities for voiceover performers who wish to license their voices for use in video games. And again, this applies just to digital replicas and not AI training to create synthetic performances. Um, and so again, this is going to be another back and forth that we're all going to have to pay attention to going forward. And we are going to wrap up with kind of just a fun story, not something so serious as we've had a lot of <laughs> kind of pretty downer stories. The story is that 
Mickey Mouse is now in the public domain and AI is on the case. So if you're online and you're in the AI spaces, you may have already come across this as a sort of meme. Uh, free early Mickey Mouse cartoons entered the public domain via black and white ones. And a lot of people immediately started training on it and generating data to the 1928 design to, uh, yeah, mess around and, and make funny things with AI Mickey Mouse, AI 1928 Mickey Mouse. And to, to get into a small amount of technical detail, Langley has fine-tuned a version of Stable Diffusion XL with stills from three 1928 cartoons. These were Steamboat Willie, Playing Crazy, and The Gallop and Gaucho. It's been used to create humorous, controversial images of Mickey Mouse, which, again, demonstrates the potential for parody and satire now that Mickey Mouse is in public domain. Um, and the use of Stable Diffusion XL doesn't make these images 100% legal because, as we mentioned earlier, the base model still incorporates copyrighted work in its training data. Uh, but again, this is a more fun, interesting use of these things. Yeah, so uh, if you go to the link, we have a story in the show notes. You can see some examples of uh, drawings of Mickey Mouse watching TV or eating pickles or whatever. So yeah, kind of just fun. And with that, we are going to wrap up. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scania Today's Last Week in AI Podcast. As always, you can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekin.ai. Thank you, Daniel, for guest co-hosting. Of course. Great to join in as always. And as always, we would appreciate it if you leave us a review or get in touch at contact at lastweekin.ai with any thoughts or suggestions. But more than anything, we would love it if you keep tuning in.